We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest. For September 1st, 2022, it's the Diligent Search Edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast. I'm here in Washington, D.C. I'm joined by my confreres, John Dickerson of CBS News from, not from New York, but from somewhere traveling. Hello, John. You reached me in a hotel room as we are dropping off our child to college, the last one. A whole new chapter opening in human experience. He's like an empty nest tomorrow, friends. John Dickerson. Yeah. So, so shed a tear for John Dickerson. We're joined by already empty nester Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. Hey, John. Hey. This week on the Gab Fest, we're not going to talk about Serena, although that is all probably Emily wants to talk about. We will talk about whether Trump or his lawyers will pay any price for hiding top secret documents and lying about that. Then how bad could a second Trump presidency be? We will talk to Jonathan Rausch about his bone-chilling Atlantic article laying out what Trump might do to erode democracy forever if he is reelected. Then John Fetterman stroke, Beto O'Rourke's nasty bacterial infection, what should happen when political candidates are knocked off the trail by health problems, and how crass can their opponents be? Plus, of course, we will have cocktail chatter. A diligent search. When you have a kid, as all of us have kids, and they cannot find a shoe, and you tell them to look in their room for it, and they yell 10 seconds later that they have looked everywhere in their room and they cannot find it, and then you go to their room and the shoe is literally on the shoe rack, that is Mar-a-Lago. My grandmother used to say, if I come up there and find it, you're going to get a spanking. <laughs> Did she ever actually deliver the spanking? <laughs> How did that work out for you? Well, it was to my mother, actually. So uh, I that was not um, inflicted on me. But as David was talking, I was having a real moment of um, Florence Honchman. So, Emily, what did we learn from the Department of Justice lawyers this week about the Mar-a-Lago search and how Trump's lawyers lied about it? Well, David, there is this picture <laughs> of folders marked top secret, marked other um, ways in which the government makes clear there's extremely sensitive information inside. And we learned that the government tried really hard to get these documents back, was not eager to up the ante so much as to have to go to court and um, conduct this search in a criminal investigation. But really, I think from the government's point of view, was desperate to get the documents back and felt stymied and thought that people were obstructing um, recovering the documents, that they were 
being moved um, around Mar-a-Lago, presumably in a way that really made the government very concerned about who had access and um, how secure they were and that someone was potentially hiding them. That someone um, may or may not be former President Trump, but God, that picture, I mean, how can you argue you did not know that you had this incredibly sensitive material that just seems like a defense that is not available to him anymore? Well, he's saying that he, I mean, he's both say, he's saying so many f- things. He's yes. saying well, that it's, it's a plant, but I declassified the plant. I mean, he's, he, is he saying that he didn't know he had it or no? He's saying it was okay for him to have it. Mostly he's saying that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If they'd only asked me, if you'd asked. Right. Yeah. I would have given it back. Like, just all you had to do is ask. But of course, that's right. And of course, totally... they did ask. And they, just to put a finer point on what you're saying, they did ask. He said he gave everything. His lawyers attested to the fact that there was nothing more to be found. And then they had reporting from inside the Trump organization that said, no, yes, there still is stuff there. They went and looked and looks, look, look what they found. They found no kidding around the highest classification possible material, according to former intelligence officials who look at this and say those classifications are the most secretive. I mean, that the classification is the most secretive and the, and the material inside them could be potentially quite harmful. Right. And we're talking about spies and, you know, their covert identities and the information that they provided. And it's information that could be sold or traded. We have no idea. And that's not to say that we have any evidence that that happened. But this is information that has real value and can really compromise people in a way that you're right, puts people in danger. Can I ask some like really tedious, like office supply questions? One do we think is it, it? It is surely not possible that these are the only copies of these documents. If Trump has a copy of this top secret document, which is that names five U.S. spies in North Korea, that cannot be the only record of it. Surely not. I I, I think one of the things that they're going to try and figure out, and I'm quickly out of my depth here, more so than normal. But my understanding from those who've worked in the in the top secret realm is that. Part of what's at issue here is the is the hygiene with which you handle this kind of information. Was that hygiene followed at the White House? And was it followed after the presidency when, by the way, he's not supposed to have this stuff at all, period, period. But if he's going to have it, he's definitely not supposed to have it mixed in there with the checks mix and the, you know, old golfing scores and, you know, the the air hockey that you don't use anymore. So... That's the two issues. But my understanding from intelligence folks is that sometimes there is only one set of documents, or if there are more than one, um, you only look at it in the secure skiff, right, right, you know, right, in the secure right. location. They keep records of who looks at it, who has the chain of custody. I mean, that every single piece is numbered and, and tracked, and then who touches the individual pieces is numbered and tracked in a way that's totally antithetical to what we've seen based on and what the reporting has told us about the way this material was handled. Emily, might a judge allow Trump to make an executive privilege claim on these documents? I mean, it's so hard to see how he could make a claim on documents that concern the workings of classified programs that Biden needs to administer. It's so hard to see how Biden could possibly be deprived of having access to this and controlling access to it. But could could a judge allow it? I mean, I, I agree with you. I think the executive privilege argument is legally implausible. 
for the reasons you're saying, it really attaches to the current president. Biden has already made clear that he doesn't buy Trump's um, claims on this score. There's now a second attorney-client privilege claim, which is um, now, though these many days later, with these fairly bumbling lawyers so far, is now part of why the Trump campaign is asking for a special master. The special master also seems kind of out of order. The FBI has already reviewed all these documents. From what I understand, what's at issue now is going through a kind of painstaking effort to figure out what other tentacles these, you know, compromised documents have into other operations in the government, right? And that seems like something you would want the government to be able to do in short order, not wait around. Plus, the FBI says it already did an attorney-client privilege check. There is something potentially deviously brilliant about the special master thing, which we shouldn't lose sight of. The special master request and the fact that the judge is evaluating it kind of leaps over and buries the idea that he shouldn't have had the stuff at all. Right. Yes. And secondly, that the only reason there might be attorney-client privilege stuff mixed in with it is because the secret material was being handled so inappropriately that he put personal stuff in with the secret, super secret stuff. So every time there's been a conversation about special master, I've wanted to just like stop the record player and say, even evaluating the special master thing puts us on turf that is away from the main question, which is why he had this stuff when he shouldn't have had it. And it's sort of beside the case, and it only seeks to delay the main thing, which is his retention of super secret stuff, why he retained it, and why he and his lawyers have lied about it. Yeah. Emily, what is the possible consequences for the lawyers? I mean, I suppose it depends on their kind of mens rea, right? Like, do they know, do they actually know there's been a diligent search done? Did they do the diligent search? Uh, what they When they claim there are no other documents there, how much work did they have to do to actually see if there were other documents there? Yeah, all of that matters. I mean, normally you don't ask lawyers to testify against their clients, but there's an exception, the crime fraud exception to that ethical rule. If you are still helping someone perpetuate an ongoing crime um, or fraud, then you are supposed to have to divulge um, whatever could help stop that. And, you know, then there's this also the question of the lawyer's own self-interest and whether if they are um, criminally exposed here, they could either take the fifth and then we won't find out what they know because they'll say that it's potentially incriminating and they don't want to testify against themselves. Or if they're really threatened, they could make a deal with the government to talk in order to, you know, get a better deal out of the government. I feel like all of this is a little implausible, but... Part of that's because I can't decide, and I wonder what you guys think, about whether the end game here was to get the documents back. And now the documents are back. And like, yes, they had to say there was um, a basis to be concerned about obstruction, and you can see why. But they're not really planning to prosecute. Or whether actually, no, like this is part of, you know, some larger potential prosecution coming out of the Department of Justice. I still don't think it would be the only thing. It's hard for me to believe that Merrick Garland is going to just charge this. But I could be wrong about that, too. And I wonder what you all what your sense is at this point. There would be something both just and farcical if the crime that Trump is charged with after committing so many obvious acts of villainy, which 
clearly ought to be crimes was this. I think that would probably, it would probably be okay in the Al Capone tax evasion school of uh, the the moral arc of the universe swings towards Alcatraz. But (laughs) that was good. But I kind of share your skepticism, Emily, that that's actually what they're going to do. I think they're probably, they probably don't want to actually charge him. Merrick Garland, I think, doesn't probably actually want to charge him. He probably wants to recover these documents and make it clear that they could charge him. But I don't know. I mean, anyone else, any other human being on the planet who did what he did would be in jail for decades. So can I just make a claim that one thing that struck me again is that this is basically, this comes back to the central flaw in the Trump presidency and that we saw it from 2017 to 2021, which is that he treated the office like a prize and that instead of seeing the presidency as a stewardship obligation, as a trusteeship, he basically saw it as like the best gift basket in the world with disposable items that he could use as he saw fit. And so and so that isn't just I mean, these documents come after a long line of instances in which basically he thought the attorney general worked for him. He thought he could take his entire uh, national security apparatus and use it to dig up dirt on Joe Biden. Um, he repeatedly basically thought that the that there were no obligations of the office other than the, the sort of ceremonial ones and that he could basically use it for himself. And this seems completely in keeping with that. And then you have the secondary issue, which is that those in his party who have basically said, oh, it's no big deal for him to use the national security apparatus to dig up dirt. It's no big deal that he trusted China on the pandemic. No big deal that he lied about the pandemic when he knew better. No big deal that he, you know, for two months tried to overthrow an election. No big deal that he didn't fulfill the obligations of commander in chief once the insurrection happened. That you basically turn the presidency into, and no big deal, you can do whatever you want. And this is yet another effort and element in that, which is the only way you can make excuses for him is by lowering the standards of the office, you know, well beyond the sub-basement. You're on fire today, John. Yeah. <laughs> you are really on fire. You've had you've had two brilliant framings and we're only in segment one. <laughs> uh, anyway. I just want to add to that, John, by pointing out how flabbergasted I am by the legal argument that Trump's lawyers are making at this point, that the Presidential Records Act of 1978, which makes clear that it's the government that owns White House files, has no enforcement mechanism. This is their argument. And thus, the government has no basis to go take these files, that effectively they belong to Trump because this 1978 law like doesn't have this particular clause in it. This is bananas. I mean, the Presidential Records Act was passed in the 70s post-Nixon to make sure that the government did control these kinds of documents, not to mention the fact that the Justice Department cited other statutes, including the Espionage Act, in this search that have nothing to do with the Presidential Records Act and are not subject to this argument. Like, there's just this You know, obviously, we've seen this before, too, where lawyers just throw everything. I mean, it's just like the kitchen sink, but it's damaging to see these kinds of arguments from people representing a former president. It just it's embarrassing. There were documents in the kitchen sink, by the way. Thank you. Let's close, John, actually, on the political impact of this. So how do Trump's legal troubles, these this particular set of Trump's legal troubles appear to be playing with 
Republican voters and politicians? And and is it a good topic for Democrats to be focusing on rolling up to the midterms? This is an excellent question. I, I think, first of all, just to your point about the, you know, Al Capone being caught for tax evasion, it would be, I mean, and I think implicit in what you're saying is it would be extraordinary if this were be something that, that, that caught up former President Trump because it was the subject of the 2016 presidential campaign. And so that's the way, the context in which I think about the question you just asked, which is we shouldn't forget that Donald Trump is the front runner for 2024, and he is the person that lots of Republicans say should run for president again. So thinking back to 2016, the whole point of Hillary Clinton's email kerfuffle was that it raised the political and policy problem that Clinton played by her own rules and that if she wasn't straight about these emails when she was confronted with this, that was a danger potentiality in a candidate who who asked to be president. It was a possibility that this could be a corrosive part of a future Clinton presidency, and that was something that she had to defend and talk about through the evaluation process of the presidential campaign. With Donald Trump right now, there's no question about the potentiality. This is the story that happened in his presidency. In every instance where he could, he did as he pleased and and not um, as the office dictated. And the only times he stopped was basically when people threatened to quit or when entire operations were going to seize up and shut down if he did as he pleased. So in this case, it's not a possibility that there might be this abuse. It, there's been proved time and time again, and now this is yet furtherance of it. So in 2016, it's like if you think about looking at a house that you're going to buy and you do an inspection. In 2016 with Hillary Clinton and the emails, there was you know some potential water damage in the basement. In 2024, based on the same set of questions... Donald Trump, you don't need to look for water damage in the basement. The entire house is submerged underwater. And so the fact that there is still excuse making on this issue and all these others after it's been proved that he's fallen short on these specific instances of the presidency, and yet people like Lindsey Graham, who's the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, want him to be president again, is a like catastrophic problem with this politically and disconnect. Now, to the question, at first they defended him. Uh, the Republicans found themselves in the odd position of saying the FBI was corrupt, which is funny given their longstanding support for the FBI. But now there's been more quiet because you have these pictures, you have this top secret classification that's been proved to be at least uh, somehow in his possession. So should Democrats talk about it? I'm not entirely clear that it's a huge winner for them. But it certainly is true that for Republic, for Democrats, they are motivated by Donald Trump in a way that shows up in the polling. The problem, though, is that Republicans are also motivated by Donald Trump. So um, I don't know how this ultimately plays out in the actual elections that are coming forward. Can I ask a question um, before we close out about that? So one thing that I find persuasive in this is that usually midterms are not a choice election, right? They're about, like, just throw the bums out, whoever they are. They're a referendum on the, right. Yeah, on the party that's in control. But here we have Trump making the elections very much about a choice, in a sense, because he's bursting into the news, reminding everyone of his worst excesses. 
And then the second thing is Dobbs and abortion, where you have the out party able to really seize, you know, control of making major change in the American legal landscape into people's lives. And I wonder if both of those things just sort of shake up the usual midterm dynamic. I think you're right for sure about Dobbs. And I think you could be right about Trump here. It requires Democrats, I think, to do what Joe Biden tried to do this week, which was frame the Trump and Republicans defense of the January 6th rioters and lawlessness and attacks on the FBI as a part of a larger message that goes beyond Donald Trump that ties it to handing over power to a party that in these instances has sought to weaken or just overlook standards of of operation in, in his defense so that it makes it a broader critique and not one just about him. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Slate Plus members, you, of course, get bonus segments on the GabFest every week. This week, we're going to be talking about what non-political book has had the biggest impact on how we think about politics. If you go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus, you can become a member today and hear that segment and also member-exclusive episodes from shows like Slow Burn and Amicus, no ads on any podcasts, and unlimited reading on the Slate site. Slate.com slash GabFest Plus. There have been some terrifying articles in recent weeks about what Trump might do in a second term or what a non-Trump authoritarian Republican president might do. And the most recent comes from Brookings senior fellow Jonathan Rausch, one of the most clear-eyed and foresighted journalists in America. I apparently called him my spirit animal a decade ago, and I hold to that. What a wise thing I said. In Trump's second term would look like this in The Atlantic, Rausch lays out quite baldly how Trump would take America from being free to only partly free. John Rausch, welcome to the GabFest. What are a few of the key ways that a 2025 Trump would manhandle democracy? Uh, Well, the first thing is thanks for having me. The second thing is we don't have to guess. They've told us. They have shown us. Everything I'm about to tell you except the last item are things that Trump either already did or already attempted. So we know what the plan is. First of all, they're going to model their next administration on Viktor Orban, who has gradually and successfully corroded democracy in Hungary. Not in a big sweeping move. He's not, you know, a coup or dictator or anything like that, but compromise freedom of the press, independence of the press, the courts, and so forth. So what does Trump do? Uh, Six things. Do you want me just to list them? Quick. Go quick. Do them quick. I will tick them off. 
Number one, he appoints toadies, people who will do his bidding, whatever that is, in key government jobs. Number two, he reinstitutes an executive order that he instituted and did not have time to complete, and that's called Schedule F, and that allows him to fire civil servants at will. They become his at-will employees. Third, he co-opts the military. He promotes and removes people so that military will be willing to do things like go to the border and round up refugees or immigrants. Number four, he brings the Justice Department, the FBI, and the other security services to heal to do what they would not do, at least not as much as he wanted in his first term, which is turn them into enforcement arms for him politically, harass his opponents, and so forth. Number five, he issues pardons for anyone who might be legally jeopardized to fall for following his wills. And he withholds pardons for those who give him flack. So he gives impunity to the people who does what he wants. Number six is a thing he did not do in his first term, but he's doing it right now in Mar-a-Lago. So we know he'll do it in his second term. And that's ignore and defy court orders. The Supreme Court will say, stop doing what you're doing. And he'll say, you and what army? That's exactly what he did at Mar-a-Lago, defying, for example, a subpoena, which is a court order. Uh, once he does all those things, America kind of looks the same day to day for the most part, but it is no longer a liberal democracy with the rule of law. One of the things I found super chilling about this, and I think it's probably why you brought up um, Viktor Orban in Hungary as the example, is that you're not having some dramatic showdown over democracy where the stakes are super clear and everybody knows exactly what's happening. You're having the kind of slow erosion. And I, I liked some of the examples you gave, which I thought like you could really imagine scenarios in which these things are very damaging, but they don't necessarily, you know, cause a revolution. So you're talking about um, defying court orders and you say that, you know, Trump could be ordered to reinstate an illegally fired inspector general, but instead the Justice Department just tells her to get lost and leave the premises. Or there's a improperly adopted regulation that the Trump administration is supposed to rescind, but they don't rescind it. Um, and then there's, you know, ordered to provide documents to Congress, um, the Trump administration shrugs. Do you imagine that um, these things would kind of unfold slowly over time in some way that would make us just be like the frog that's getting boiled in water? Or do you imagine a kind of more organized sense where the, the Trump administration is really on the march to accomplish a lot? Because one thing about the last time around was there was a lot of chaos and that prevented some of the kind of more um, thought through sinister effects and impact that you're outlining here. Um, it's staged. Some of these things happen on day one. He signs an executive order reinstating Schedule F on day one. That's prepared during the transition. So basically on day two, he starts firing civil servants um, who he thinks might not be loyal to him. Uh, on day one, he starts announcing, or actually during the transition, he starts announcing his appointees. And they include, for example, Rudy Giuliani as attorney general. But, you know, those take time to confirm, or if it's a Democratic Senate, they won't be confirmed. And he has a plan for that, too, and that's to put in place acting appointees, which he became very good at and actually preferred in his first term. So he will evade congressional confirmation, but that will take time. 
It'll take some time to co-opt the military and go through it and begin promoting loyalists. DOJ, I don't know. He'll start work on them right away. It might take a while to bring them to heel, uh, but he'll do it. And then, you know, pardons. He can announce pardons on his first day in office. Uh, he's already said that he might pardon all of the January 6th rioters, for example. He could do that. No one could stop it. It's his constitutional right. The one about the courts takes longer because he'll maneuver and maneuver what he's done now since, you know, 35 years in his real estate business is drag out lawsuits, make them very expensive. And, you know, it'll take a couple of years for the lawsuits to come to, to a head and have the Supreme Court finally say what you're doing is illegal, Mr. President. And, and at that point, he'll defy them. So it'll be gradual enough. So, you know, there will be headlines saying Trump is done doing these terrible things, but the Republican Party will be defending him and the base will be saying, yippee, that's great. And the news media will be moving on to the next thing. And so we'll get acclimated to it. Just picking right up on that point, John, it seems when I was reading this, at one point it hit me and I thought, there will be some number of people where they will read your article and they will think, oh, this is a list of best practices. <laughs> in other words, they will think, yes, in sort of the Orban model. In other words, oh, well, if this will get us to an Orban-like conclusion, then, then how good it is that it's basically so methodical and, and doable. Well, that's right. This is not a nightmare scenario for everybody. Um, Orban is popular in Hungary. He just decisively won an election, and he won it fair and square. I mean, he probably cheated, but he didn't have to cheat. It turns out that there's a large constituency for a strong authoritarian leader who, quote unquote, gets things done and who owns the other side. My scenarios all assume that Trump wins fair and square in, in 2024 and becomes president with you know not a shadowed presidency. And yeah, lots of Americans would like to see a more authoritarian president that owns the libs. John, you predicted more than anyone I know the rise of Trump with an article you wrote in 2016, early 2016, about, it was called How American Politics Went Insane. And it was about just this. It was about this huge surge in Americans who, or partly about this, this huge surge in Americans who simply didn't believe in politics and were willing to give up a lot of what we perceive as liberty and perceive as the sort of fundamental structures of American democracy in order to have a strong ruler. So the question that comes out of that for me is, you you frame this as a Trump presidency in 2025. Is this any Republican presidency, any next Republican presidency, does it look like this? I don't know. I'd like to know what you guys think about that. Ron DeSantis, who looks like the strongest alternative to Trump, is a constitutional scholar. He actually wrote a book about the Constitution. He has Harvard and Yale degrees. I can't remember which one is the law school. I think he'd be a harder sell on something like just ignoring court orders or giving out pardons as party favors to loyalists, for example. But I don't know that. And you're right, David, that there is probably half of the Republican base, which would be about a quarter of the country, would welcome these moves and, and in fact, maybe demand them from a Republican president. So I don't know the answer to your question. I'd actually love to know what, what you think. I mean, I think we're all concerned about this as a general move and way in which the Republican Party, because it's been so willing to exceed in Trump's anti-democratic uh, tendencies, that they're just kind of laying the groundwork for 
allowing that from whoever the next president is. Once you have that ability, you have to decide not to use it, right? So if you're DeSantis and it's a means to an end and you want that end, then, you know, and it's available to you, the door is open. You could imagine someone setting aside whatever principles they had. I mean, also, DeSantis has already done some things in office that have been very sweeping, like firing, um, you know, a, a duly elected prosecutor, or I should say, I think removing him from office, I guess firing is the wrong word. And there are other moves he's making, right? Selective prosecution of people who voted, who were told they could vote and voted, and then he prosecutes them for voting illegally. Yeah. Yes, and whips everyone to a frenzy about him when it was actually the government that told them they could vote. And withdrawing a government arrangement from Disney specifically punitively to punish Disney for exercising speech rights is right out of the Victor Orban playbook. You know, if if you don't support me, you're going to lose government benefit A, B, or C. Uh, that was chilling. I think also you have this systemic thing that's happened now among some Republicans, which is that, and you saw it in with the Mar-a-Lago documents, you saw the ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee, Jim Jordan, put out a tweet in response to the picture saying, um, you know, saying that, oh, those Time Magazine covers are, you know, that's the problem, sort of making light of and making fun of the idea that the president kept top secret documents. Now, the whole point of that was to bait liberals, own the libs and bait the media as a way of signaling in the way that is now very important in rising in the attention economy of the Republican Party, which is you signal to the rest of your in-team that you are on the other side of the well-educated elites and the media. And so the more outrageous the signal, the more you are on the team. And the way you become outrageous is by bucking what used to be the basic functioning of government. And so that all exists without Donald Trump being around. But I do think that his star power in the party is something that DeSantis doesn't have, although DeSantis is a kind of star himself. But it, it's not the same wattage that Trump has. And so I wonder how that would play out. I think maybe it's only a small degree, but I do think it's one area where Donald Trump gets away with things that, that DeSantis may not be able to just because he lacks the the star power that Trump has in that yeah, party. Or, or DeSantis may not want to. You know, the puzzle about Trump is he does so many of these things without really needing to do these things. He, you know, he probably would have been elected if he had followed more of the rules um, and behaved less outrageously. So I, I would guess, I, I suppose we'd all agree, uh, raise your hand if you don't, but I think we'd probably all agree that Trump is significantly more dangerous than, than anyone else for the next Republican presidency. Well, I, I disagree. I'm raising oh. my hand. I disagree because Trump is a chaos monkey and that creates in the public a sense of anxiety and the public is willing to get exercised and outraged and get, get in the streets and He's an easier target for his political opponents. He makes it very hard even for Republicans to support what he's doing because he's he's such a repellent, uh, you know, clearly narcissistic, uh, loathsome, immoral human being in a way that, as far as I know, Ron DeSantis is not. And so I do think that somebody who is who combines the the techniques of what you describe with a less repellent personality, they might not have the charismatic magnetism that gets them far enough. But if they got elected, I think they would be more effective and therefore more dangerous in the long term to to society. But picking up on what John wrote, it seems like 
since the Trump presidency ended, a farm team has been built that's different than what Trump had coming in in 2016. His victory was a bit of a surprise. He had to rely on Republicans in the pipeline to staff a lot of his agencies. And some of those Republicans bucked him when he tried to go over the line. What we've seen subsequent to that is a conditioning within the party to excuse make and lower the standards of the office in order to keep basically making excuses for a lot of the things he did, which means that creates a roster of those toadies you were talking about. And that roster of toadies who have been willing to excuse the things he did in office is now pretty big. And you know who they all are, and you can put them on the roster for your next administration. I think that roster is a Trump roster and not a DeSantis roster. And therefore, to fulfill the execution of the plan that Jonathan writes about, you need that those toadies. And I think there are more of them um, already in training for for a future Trump presidency than there are for other candidates. That's a strong point. Yes, I think that's, that, that must be true. Um, how big of a difference it makes over the course of four years, we don't know. But, but yeah, Trump is clearly in a position to, to have a running start in a second term. Uh, he's got the personnel. He knows the methods. He's broadcast the plans. He doesn't have to do a secret conspiracy. He's already signaled what he's going to do. So yeah, he, he can move much more quickly, I think, probably. And the other thing is he has motivation, right? Because he wants to take revenge on the government. I mean, he's incredibly angry right now. He's cornered. And this would be him in control, getting to be like Voldemort and (laughs) raising all the ashes. So, John, one thing I wonder about, I mean, do you feel like your Cassandra here just kind of howling into the wind is part of the... Um, thought experiment to just really try to show what the stakes are for the 2024 election? Because you're basically arguing that America will not survive in its current form, a second Trump term. Or is there a way in which this is not only about this kind of hinge moment in 2024, but some way where we could imagine bumbling our way through and coming out on the other side? So I'd love to poll three of you guys on that question, because I'm on the fence. I don't think we really know. We know that in Hungary, authoritarianism has turned out to be popular. We know that's true in a number of other countries. We know that in the US, Trump tried far more and got away with far more in terms of public opinion and party support than any of us, I think, would have ever imagined possible. The the thing I don't know the answer to is we know the plan. He stated it. I've run through it. How much resistance does he meet from the American public? To what extent do people say, wow, he's ignoring court orders. That's intolerable. We really care about that. Punish him politically for it. Um, Because he does care about his approval and popularity. Or to what extent do people shrug and say, well, this is, you know, some fight of an inspector general and it doesn't matter to me and allow him to ratchet through these procedures? I don't know the answer to that. And I think that's ultimately what it'll boil down to. Jonathan Rausch of The Atlantic and Brookings Institution, thanks for joining us. Read John's article, Trump's second term would look like this in The Atlantic. Thanks, everyone. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. 
I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. Pennsylvania Senate candidate John Fetterman, who had a stroke right before the Democratic primary that he won handily through his spokespeople, is indicating he doesn't particularly want to debate Mehmet Oz, his opponent, his Republican opponent in that Senate race, because the auditory complexity of a debate would be hard on him as he recovers from his stroke. He is back on the campaign trail, but he is seems a bit slower. He's a bit more ginger with language and doesn't want to debate, especially because he's way up ahead in that race. Beto O'Rourke, who is trailing Governor Greg Abbott in Texas, went off the campaign trail this week of the bacterial infection. Uh, these two are not, of course, the first candidates to be afflicted while running. Hillary Clinton, I think, had a flu. Trump tested positive for COVID right before a debate with Biden and hid that positive test. Uh, and of course, you have candidates and, and elected officials who are clearly compromised in their service. Diane Feinstein is widely reported to to not be up to speed. And in her work as a senator, Strom Thurmond in his later years in the Senate was clearly not mentally really capable of being a great senator. So I also, just before we get started, want to read this incredible quote from the National Republican Senatorial Committee, which supports Dr. Oz's campaign, who called Fetterman a whiny coward who's too weak and feeble to debate. So, John, you are a, a scholar and philosopher. What are the expectations we should have about a sick or physically compromised person campaigning? Should we cut them a break? I think it's actually a super interesting question. I think basically everything should be on the table. We're talking now in the realm of what should be, not, you know, how campaigns actually exist. So we can talk about that later. But to my mind, the reason it's an important question is because, pardon me for going back to the damn same thing over and over again, but if you talk about physical fitness and mental fitness, you're talking about what the hell does the job require and does this person have the stuff required for the job? And that, you know, we don't want to all be armchair doctors and there's a real race to the bottom with that. But again, if this is as things should be, a debate about capacity is a good one because it gets into what's the job, do they have the skills for the job? And maybe we'd stop, you know, electing people because they're shiny and and elect people who have the actual attributes for the jobs they're trying to do. I think as a political matter, as you pointed out, Fetterman's not debating because he's winning. The guys who whine about the debates are the ones who are losing. And the only time it's ever really effective, I think, is when the person who, who's complaining about the debates can tie it to an issue that really matters. And I don't see so far that Fetterman's health matters nearly as much as, say, things like Oz's disconnect from the state that he's running in and his continued success in producing material to fuel that fire. So I go back to, before we forget, because I looked it up last night, 
just one of the great moments all time in any debate ever having to do with his health, which was in the the Mondale-Reagan debate in 1984, where Reagan was asked about his age and asked about whether he was tiring and, you know, whether he was up to the job. And Reagan said, I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. And it was just, it was like the mic drop. The election was basically over. I actually remember watching that live and being like, wow, that was, that was good as a 14-year-old. You still got it. Comeback time. And yet, of course, in his second term, his health wasn't. <laughs> oh, it's, it know? totally was. You know, and we've had presidents. I mean, this is a little off the field, and I'm so sorry to interrupt. But I mean, we've had, you know, Eisenhower lied about his heart attack. They lied about Wilson's. John Kennedy lied constantly and repeatedly about his health issues. Yeah. I mean, but Emily, is there an effective way to attack your ailing opponent or your aging opponent? Is there a way you can do it that doesn't make you seem like an asshole? I mean, look, if someone has a condition in which they're deteriorating and they're really not going to be able to do the job, then it's like your duty to point it out. And I feel like you can do it and you're just kind of pointing to something obvious. I mean, it's not the nicest way to do politics, but it of lines of attack, if it's fact based, it seems legitimate. I guess one thing I was thinking about, thinking about Fetterman and um, Beto O'Rourke, is the difference between a, a condition in which you're deteriorating and you're not going to recover, a.k.a. Dianne Feinstein, and something where, like, a bad thing happened to you and you are going to get better. And I think what's tricky about Fetterman is that strokes are a little bit ambiguous, right? Like, right. people right. totally come back from strokes. Does it matter that, like, every word coming out of his mouth right now isn't totally perfect? No. If he doesn't feel like he's up for doing a debate in a year, is that, like, a great way to be a senator? Maybe not. I don't know. I mean, you don't really have to, like, think on your feet that much in that office, but it seems a little at odds with how we usually think about that role. Um, so I guess for me, that's the question here. I totally associate myself with the remarks from the gentlelady from Connecticut. I totally agree. <laughs> Who will never be elected to anything. Hallelujah. But a lot of these things are ambiguous. Bernie Sanders had a heart attack in the 2020 campaign. He wasn't going to, you know, win the nomination, I guess, but he did have a heart attack. And is that a he is deteriorating or is that a it just had a heart attack no yeah. big deal well in retrospect it seems like he had a heart attack no big deal but yeah. i think when people are quite old then we do wonder about whether they're going to be fit all the way through office which of course yeah. leads us right to president biden for better or worse and all the questions about his age right and one of the reasons i thought this was a fascinating question when you were first asked me the first question to start this segment is Kara Swisher's that Bridget included in the research, which I was really grateful for. She had a stroke and she wrote a piece back in 2019 that said Luke Perry had a stroke. Luke Perry, the actor who died from a stroke. Luke Perry had a stroke and died. I had one and lived. So it was both about, I guess, living after having a stroke. But more to the point, she talked about the more acute understanding of life and the focusing quality of death that comes from one of these experiences. And a lawmaker, and this now gets very much into the thin air of, of um, philosophy, but a lawmaker who has a an acute understanding of the 
the short time we all have here and the urgency of basically everything, because Swisher writes about basically that it, it makes her more focused and and she recognizes that, that the stakes matter because we don't have much time here on this earth. Um, that, that that mindset, to the extent anybody who's running for office has that as a result of Brush With Death, would be a, a welcome thing to have in office because you might imagine in a world of fantasy that it would blow through some of the faff and falderall that we have as a part of politics. Well, some people, and I point you to Live Like You Were Dying, the great Tim McGraw song, it makes you focus on your family and not really focus on these bigger world questions. And maybe that's not congruent with being a great senator. Yes. Do any of us think that it's okay to not be like sharp as a tack as a senator or even the president because it's the people around you who are really doing much of the work and as long as you're sort of generally giving guidance, like this is probably ridiculous, but does it matter that Ronald Reagan was kind of out of it for a while there? Like did did it affect history in some way that we feel like, oh my God, America really dodged a bullet? I think in that specific case, people would say that it led to his confusion about the arms for hostages deal and his his role in allowing that to go forward. And then his role in the aftermath and the cover-up of that. So I think people would say in that instance, and there are probably other things that I'm forgetting as a part of his presidency, but it is a fascinating question because it gets back to, again, the reason I love these questions in the first place, which is what is the job? Is the job to be able to answer all detailed questions about every tiny thing in your administration or to have a couple of core things that you are absolutely adamant about that your continued presence in the administration or in the Senate or whatever creates an, an operating environment where all of the talented people you've picked, assuming you've picked talented people, are aligned regularly along those three or four values and therefore actually are super effective in a way that a highly detailed person scattered over millions of issues and tiny details of them would actually make you less effective. But that's obviously a hugely open for debate idea about leadership in broad terms as well. I would also just note in as we bring this topic to its bitter end, that so many of the really important events of the last few years have been a result of the death of someone who had served too long in office. Like you think uh, Ted Kennedy dies in office and that causes like chaos with the Affordable Care Act with Obama's early early presidency. Scalia dies, which wins the presidency for Trump. Scalia, who'd served a long time. And Ginsburg's refusal to retire in a timely manner probably, you know, is the... Flips the court. Ends row. I mean, <laughs> this is not the same as someone had a stroke and therefore they shouldn't run because obviously Fetterman's the nominee. He's, it's his job to get to get elected now, but people stay too long and they stick around too long and they think they're too important. And the Supreme Court, we see it most acutely, but it happens in the Senate. It's absurd that Dianne Feinstein is a senator from California at this point. It's absurd. No argument there. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're contemplating illness, death, the the decline that faces all of us, the deterioration that is the world, the entropy of the universe, and you need to allay that with a cocktail and a better subject. John, what will you be chattering about? So basically every waking moment. <laughs> um, mine is two things. One is just the New York Times, we'll put the link uh, on our show page, but has a really great 
feature that explains and allows you to participate in the process of redistricting and gerrymandering, which just teaches you its history, but also how it's done. And I was, uh, I came across it when I was working in preparation for the the last primary, which, as everybody knows, was the result of some bad gerrymandering for Democrats in New York when they went too far in creating the congressional maps and had a court um, slap them back, much to their chagrin in New York, and then successfully for Ron DeSantis and his team in uh, Florida, gerrymandering and redrawing the lines uh, in Florida to make more Republican seats. The This feature is just really well done in terms of explaining and giving you an, a chance to to see how it's done. Also, our next Gabfest Reads is my conversation with Ada Calhoun and her book, Also a Poet, which is about Frank O'Hara, the poet, her father, who is a, a famous writer, um, an art critic, The New Yorker, and me. She is herself a New York Times bestselling author. Uh, and it's about this book her father was going to write about Frank O'Hara that she picked up and then her relationship with her father. And we had a great conversation about it. And that'll be coming up. So if you want to read that book, go get it. And then you will be ready to listen to the next Gabfest Reads. Emily, what's your chatter? Well, we're going to talk about Serena and her amazing victory on Wednesday night, which uh, we will hopefully not be spoiling for our audience. But first, and sorry to be so New York Times-centric, but there was a great video feature this week in the Times about the service toss in tennis. They took a lot of um, footage of Francis Tiafo, who is this, I think, terrific American player. And I learned so much from it. One thing they were looking at was how much Tiafo's uh, toss deviates, like in terms of the place in the air where he hits it. And he actually has like 10 to 12 inches of deviation. I shudder to think how much deviation I have. Um, but they were saying that Serena and Federer and Kyrgios all basically always hit the ball in the same place. And it's part of why their service is so effective because it's reliable. And also their opponents never know where it's going to go because they're not signaling. And then there was this whole interesting thing about how you hold the ball and how that affects how much spin you put when you flick your fingers, which is another total problem for me. So I just had a great time with this. And now, John, I want to hear what your thoughts were watching Serena just pull out this amazing three-set victory as a 40-year-old mother who was absolutely not expected to beat the number two seed in the tournament. Well, right. So she wins the first set and then loses the second set. And this is, to me, one of her many extraordinary attributes is, and Emily, you know this too, when you play tennis competitively, it's your head, whatever, if you can hit the ball. It's mostly whether you can keep your head from and your brain from completely unspooling. And when you lose a, a set 6-2, after you've won one, the first set, you are very apt to think, oh, you know, I started strong, but now I've lost it. And you just go into a spiral and then you lose and it's just inevitable and you just have to engage in the process of just losing. However, if you are tough as nails as Serena Williams is, you repeatedly throughout your career have been losing and nevertheless dug deep and and won. And that requires not just winning a point, it requires winning multiple points. And that's just extraordinary. And she's done it over such a long period of time with all kinds of different players being thrown at her. And as her body has changed with age, as it does with any human being. And so being able to adapt and so having the physical and mental toughness is just extraordinary. So I was reminded of that 
both as we look back on her career, because she says this is her last tournament, but also in the way she's been playing. And man, she pulled out those serves when she needed them, right? I mean, at one point, McEnroe, who was announcing, said, I think this was the first match that she played, like, the serve is the last thing to go, which (laughs) isn't a very nice way to put it. But I was just thinking about how in these moments of pressure where she was down in a game or needed to close out a game, that she could just make her body do this very difficult, incredibly precise, like, crackerjack thing where you just, like slam the ball into one corner or the other, just know where your opponent can get it. It just was amazing. My chatter, just a, a rapid fire series of chatters, like a serve and volley game or something. Um, first, <laughs> yeah. an a, important update for my chatter last week. Corn, Corn. Con- continues to be the best. You know, can I just totally <laughs> bunder in here again? Ever since you said that, I've, I've had corn like three times since last week. And every time I think, oh my God, Plots was so right Corn. Only it's, fresh it's corn, the, though, right? Like, this is the season. It's good that yeah. you're eating it a lot. Well, we no. can talk about it. that's a that, We can do a whole slate plus about that one We day. should. I want to hear uh, the defense of canned corn or well, frozen oh, corn. It frozen doesn't corn, exist for sure. in my head. Though you have that rice recipe that has frozen yeah. corn in it. And the recipe, the, the tofu and corn recipe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. an amazing you're, recipe. You're incredibly corny. I am. <laughs> that is you. true. You're you are the corny one among us here. All right. Second quick one. Um, as GapFest listeners know, I do this tour of a secret Civil War fort with Airbnb, and I just listed a whole bunch of new dates in the fall and winter. So look for exploring a secret fort on Airbnb. Love to see you out there, or email me davidplots at gmail or tweet at me, and I'll connect you. Uh, so come join that. Another log rolling. The CityCast DC podcast went daily this week. If you live in DC, it's so. Good. Today, I interviewed Matt Iglesias. I hosted it today as a guest host. I interviewed Matt about his wild and weird and brilliant plan for housing in D.C. Also, this week, we did something on PG County's Pitbull ban. We should did who should be on D.C.'s Mount Rushmore. We did something on the crazy $10 billion plan to redevelop Union Station. It is so good. Subscribe to CityCast D.C., wherever you're listening to us. And finally, my real chatter, Bad Sisters. Have you guys been watching this? No. This is Sharon, Sharon Horgan, who was the the uh, star of Catastrophe, the female star of Catastrophe, is the star of this show, which is about five Irish sisters, and one of them has a dead husband. And one of them's husband has just died. And it's like big little lies, but it's so funny, and it's Irish. It's on Apple TV. It is so good. Bad Sisters. Check it out. Listeners, you send chatters to us something that you have found fascinating and worthy of discussion at your cocktail party. And our chatter today comes, I believe, from Mike Kohler, who is one of my college roommates and dearest friends. Hi, this is Mike from Palo Alto, California. My cocktail chatter is a Twitter thread written by Elliot Higgins, the founder of Bellingcat. He introduces us to Maria Adela Kufeld, abandoned in Moscow as a baby during the 1980 Olympic Games. Her life thereafter took a number of surprising turns, none more shocking than the reason for her sudden disappearance on September 15, 2018. The full story with lots of great additional details can be read in the linked article on Bellingcat. Thank you, Mike.
That's our show for today. The GapFest is produced by Kevin Bendis today. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is senior director for Podcast Ops. Alicia Montgomery is the vice president of audio for Slate. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest and tweet chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? So this one, just, I don't know, sometimes we we just throw throw things in the air and see what lands, see where the tea leaves take us, see where the entrails guide us. And today we're going to talk about a book that is not about politics that made you think differently about politics. Anyone want to start? Emily. So I was thinking about my own feminist politics and where they come from. And I'm not sure I can distill it down to one book, but I'm going to try. I read a lot of like 19th century and early 20th century literature when I was in high school and probably in college too. I can't quite remember. And one book I was thinking about is The Age of Innocence by Edith Wharton, in which the protagonist, who's the Countess Ellen Olenska, is this kind of beguiling character who shows up. She's really attractive to the main male character who's supposed to marry someone else, but she's like entangled in this previous marriage um, and can't figure out how to get divorced. And it just bothered me so much (laughs) growing up that you could make this one bad pairing and then not be able to get yourself out of it. This like sense that you're trapped forever, which, you know, shows up in other books too, like Portrait of a Lady and other things I'm sure I'm forgetting. But it this idea of being so stuck and dependent on someone you don't want to be with anymore, I think was a force for me in I mean, I guess the most obvious connection is just liberalizing divorce laws. But I think for me, it went way beyond that into just some fundamental notion of people's independence um, separate from their gender and just some sense that, like, you just can't be in that position. John? I think I have two. I I know there are more. There are definitely more, but two that come most quickly to mind. The first is Heart of Darkness, but also basically a lot of Conrad. Lord Jim probably in this category too, but particularly so the role and the and the push and pull between imagination and restraint that you need to have both as an individual and also as a society the successful skill of creativity, imagination, boundary pushing, but that a society falls apart if our um, Imagination, the other side of the coin of imagination is appetite. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.